This is Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us to keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. In America and elsewhere, psychiatrists use the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, to identify a range of symptoms of conditions such as depression and schizophrenia. This is now in its fifth edition. The analogy here is with other kinds of illness, such as smallpox or Ebola. But is the assumption that mental disorders are discrete, discontinuous categories, like other illnesses, a reasonable one? Stephen Hyman questions some of the philosophical assumptions on which the DSM categorizations are based. Steve Hyman, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. The topic we're talking about today is the philosophy of psychiatry, and in particular, the problem of categorization. How are people categorized in psychiatry? The current classification in psychiatry, which dates from Emil Kraepelin's work in the late 19th century, but was formalized with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM 3, published in 1980, is that psychiatric disorders are treated as discontinuous categories, that is, discontinuous from health and discontinuous from each other. And the DSM lists a great number of them. So we might have a category like autism or attention deficit, hyperactive disorder, and there would be a set of criteria by which doctors, psychiatrists would use to judge whether you have that condition. That's exactly right. So say for depression, there are a list of nine criteria, and if you have five of nine criteria, you meet the diagnosis of depression, and in many countries that means that your health service or your insurance will then pay for treatment, and you will have the status of being a patient. And those criteria might be what? Give us an idea of what would count as criteria for depression. Well, for depression, the criteria would be sad mood or a lack of interest, disordered sleep, lack of energy, disordered appetite, and also a change in thoughts, sense of helplessness, hopelessness, and suicidal ideation. But the issue is that you need five of nine. So the bad news is that some people will be similar on only a single criterion and still get the diagnosis of depression. So one person might have criteria one, two, three, four, five. The other person might have criteria five, six, seven, eight, nine. And all they have in common is number five. That's correct. And that, of course, is problematic for science. One problem for science is that if people can meet five of nine criteria and therefore be alike only on a single criterion and still get the same diagnosis, it creates the following problem. Let's say you're doing a brain imaging study and trying to determine what's different between people who are depressed and healthy comparison subjects. The more different the putative depressives are from each other, the less likely you are to detect a real difference between them and people who are deemed healthy. One real problem then in the real world is presumably it's difficult to identify what will work best in treating these patients. That's absolutely true. But if the issue is how do we match somebody with a proper treatment with the right medicine and the right cognitive therapy, or perhaps choosing one or the other as a beginning, it becomes a great deal of guesswork if the diagnosis doesn't really identify really particular groups of people. When they're categorized, these conditions, 
are categorized as though they're entirely separate, so that depression is separate from schizophrenia or anything else. That's right. Does that pose a problem? So the researchers who laid the foundations for modern psychiatric diagnosis, this was in the 1970s, with most of them actually at Washington University in St. Louis, these researchers very much wanted psychiatry to have real diseases, whatever that means. And they took as their model something like an infectious disease. You know, you have smallpox or you don't. You have Ebola or you don't. These are discontinuous categories. And if you have Ebola, you don't have smallpox. I mean, you, I suppose you could be unlucky enough to have both, but they are distinct illnesses with a distinct known cause. And the notion is that psychiatry would be the same. Now, this was partly a reaction to psychoanalysis, which in its theory saw human psychopathology on a continuum, and depending on which developmental steps you failed to negotiate, you would have one set of symptoms or another. It was also in response to the anti-psychiatry movement that made allegations, for example, that psychiatry was picking on eccentrics and annoying people in society, giving them diagnoses, and then locking them away. And so there were a lot of biases driving these investigators, not that they consciously hewed to those biases, but they did choose a categorical model, which now really seems to have been a very poor choice. A poor choice because, in fact, many of these categories are interlinked. Yeah, so what what we've seen, once the research turned into the DSM-3, we're now up to the DSM-5, is that many people who have any DSM diagnosis have two or three or four or five. So a child might have diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, OCD, and an anxiety disorder. Well, it's not likely that the child has four separate illnesses, but rather a single process that is causing very diverse symptoms. Very typically, uh, someone will develop an anxiety disorder or two, according to the DSM, in teen years, and then in their early 20s, they'll add depression, and then maybe uh, they'll be self-medicating and develop an alcohol use disorder. And again, they may end up with four or five illnesses when, again, there's only one underlying process. And so this problem, it's often referred to as comorbidity, but comorbidity assumes you have more than one morbid condition. Actually, what it points to is the fact that the diagnostic silos that were crafted for the DSM system don't match reality very well. At a minimum, they're far too narrow. Part of that conceptual reality, as laid out in the DSM, is that you either have a condition or you don't have a condition. There's a kind of threshold, and once you're past that threshold, you can be said to be autistic or schizophrenic or whatever. Is that the way the world actually is? Well, of course, I think that's another error. So we've just talked about comorbidity, which is that the boundaries between one disorder and another in the DSM are falsely set. And I think the second error is that there is a clear boundary between most psychiatric disorders and normalcy or health. In fact, there's very good evidence that these categorical thresholds are both rigid and arbitrary. What kind of evidence are we talking about? Well, if somebody has four out of nine DSM criteria and they're severe, and you have five of nine and they're less severe but over threshold, why does one person get a diagnosis and another not? 
The other issue is they're not at all context-dependent or benchmarked according to age or development. So ADHD has one set of criteria that are said with great seriousness to apply across all ages. But, you know, making the diagnosis in a four-year-old versus a nine-year-old versus a 17-year-old is a very different matter with respect to attentional mechanisms, cognitive control, ability to sit still. So at a simple level, the thresholds are very problematic. Isn't it inevitable that a health system has to come up with some way of demarcating people who are sick and people who are not sick? They've got to find some method of determining who should get the resources. So, of course, there's going to be some arbitrariness to the categorization. So clearly, medical systems and societies have to make decisions about where to put medical resources and who is declared a patient and therefore has potentially the ability to be absent from work or school, what have you. But I don't think it should be as arbitrary as all that. So there are two ways of, in a coarsest sense, of classifying illness. One are discontinuous categories. So again, you might have an infectious disease where you don't. But the other way, which is probably more suitable to most common, chronic, non-communicable human ills, is to think of these as dimensions which are continuous with normalcy. And many of these ills actually are captured on more than one dimension. So let's take blood pressure. So you have what's called the systolic blood pressure when your heart contracts and the diastolic blood pressure when your heart relaxes and both matter. And above a certain level that you need in order to be able to walk around without passing out, blood pressures are distributed across the population. And the question is, what is high blood pressure? So what's happened is there have been empirical studies following people with different blood pressures and looking at their outcomes. And at certain levels, there are an excess, which may be defined by a policy body, but there's an excess of heart attacks, excess of strokes, and these actually get binned as borderline mild, moderate, and severe hypertension. They have different treatment recommendations. They are certainly continuous with normal. But what matters is that health authorities set, based on empirical outcomes data, what the threshold is for treatment and weighs things like the efficacy of treatment against its side effects and its costs. Now, in psychiatry, there is no bright line between normal sadness and clinically diagnosable depression. There are instead continua. Now, we haven't, unfortunately, because we've been intellectually captured by the categorical system. We don't have the necessary dimensions, and it's by no means as easy as blowing up a blood pressure cuff, but there's absolutely no evidence for any discontinuities. So for depression, for any of these disorders, the thresholds were basically set by a group of people deciding what was reasonable by their lights, and uh, this is highly problematic because it might deny early treatment to a youngster who might not meet all of the adult criteria, It doesn't recognize that having four criteria severely might be worthy of treatment as opposed to having five. We haven't done the empirical research to allow rational setting of thresholds for treatment. 
And you're arguing that there should be a radical recategorization of many illnesses currently defined in psychiatry. So that's right. But in addition to what I've told you, there's more interesting evidence emerging. So let's take these uh, developmental disorders, autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. So one thing we see is that both autism-like traits, that is, problems with social cognition and social communication, and narrow repetitive behavioral repertoires and narrow interests, are traits that are normally distributed in the population. What has more recently emerged, as we've been more and more successful at looking at the genetics underlying the autism spectrum, is that most, maybe 90% of autism, is characterized as polygenic, meaning many, many genes are involved. In fact, probably many hundreds of small tweaks in maybe hundreds or maybe even a thousand of our genes are involved in autism. And autism, we think, occurs when you have an infelicitous pileup or burden of the risk versions of these genes, plus still unknown developmental influences and presumably with some environmental factors. But genes are highly influential in the causation of autism. Now, what we see is that the risk versions of these genes are also normally distributed in the population. And we know that there are people with all kinds of different styles with respect to social communication and with respect to narrow range of interests and certain cognitive styles. And uh, at least preliminarily, these seem to match in a rough and ready way the dosage of these genes. Now, it's not all bad. There's preliminary evidence that academic performance may be positively correlated with at least a certain small dose of genes that at high dose may predispose to autism. I wouldn't call that textbook ready yet. But the point here is that there is no gap between ill and well. Rather, for the autism spectrum, the genetic risk and the behavioral traits are both normally distributed in the population. And so diagnostic thresholds really are not a matter of a group getting together and deciding you have it or you don't. They really warrant careful empirical study before deciding who is ill and who is different. Philosophically, I can see that this is very interesting because the old categorization, which you want to overturn, implies that there's some kind of natural kind of schizophrenia, which is discontinuous in some way from other brain states. Well, that's right. I mean, what uh, the evidence increasingly is showing as we do genetics, but also as we begin to study the neuroscience and cognition and behavior, is that there are no discontinuities. Clearly, you know, at one end, people are highly impaired with certain autism spectrum manifestations, clearly highly impaired with schizophrenia, with cognitive disability and hallucinations and delusions. But again, these are not discontinuous like smallpox. And this has implications for educational systems, presumably for systems of justice, and even for the way we think about people. And if I was to interview you in 15 years' time, do you expect that you'll have won the argument and that it'll be a radical recategorization of psychiatric conditions? 
Well, I, I hope that within 15 years, my colleagues and I will have won the intellectual argument. Now, I do not expect that within 15 years we will have a new classification. Unfortunately, the DSM captured all of academic psychiatry, or the DSM plus the World Health Organization's ICD, which is very similar. And so people really have not done their homework and studied you know, how we would measure dimensions that are germane to psychiatric illness. We have a long way to go. Steve Hyman, thank you very much. Pleasure. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.